Hello and welcome to the first episode of Conversations for 2024. This year's podcast will take us back to basics, a deep dive into each of the strategies through conversation with the investment specialist responsible for each. The first two episodes will set the groundwork for 2024 by taking a look at the domestic and global macro environment and how that's likely to impact investors. Today's conversation sees GSFM's investment strategist Stephen Miller in conversation with our CEO Damien McIntyre. Steve will share his perspective on the macroeconomic themes impacting Australia and the rest of the world and the investment environment as we look forward into 2024. Before I hand over, I need to read this important notice. The information contained in this podcast is general and does not consider your objectives, financial situation or needs. The information and views contained in this update reflects, as of the date of recording, the current opinions of the participants and are subject to change without notice. Before making an investment decision in relation to a fund, investors should consider the appropriateness of this information, having regard to their own objectives, financial situation and needs, and read and consider both the product disclosure statement and the additional information. GSFM Responsible Entity Services has produced a target market determination in relation to all of the GSFM funds. The TMD sets out the class of persons who comprise the target market for the various funds, which can be downloaded from our website. This podcast was recorded on Monday the 19th of February 2024. Damon, Steve, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Tracy, and I trust you had a, an enjoyable Christmas and summer break and great to have you with us again this year. Thanks. Same to you, Steve. Welcome. Thank you, Damien. I think having macro discussions early in the year is timely for everyone because I think we've, we're starting the new year and we're really trying to focus on what matters for us, for both our client portfolios and how we frame our views of the market. So it's great to have you with us, Steve, looking at the macro picture initially in Australia and, and then expanding out globally. Just by way of background, Steve has had a pretty much all of his career working in bond markets, either on the sell side. Steve even worked in the United States selling Australian bonds to US investors and then came back and was managing Australian bond portfolios at BT and then later went on to be head of, a, head of fixed income at BlackRock. So Steve's had a career thinking and, and investing in bonds, you know, for the best part of three or four decades. So great to pick your brain on what's ahead. Perhaps it's worthwhile starting with just this this conundrum of where we are in the inflation interest rates cycle today. Perhaps we could start with Australia because we seem to be getting mixed messages. On the one hand, inflation seems to be quite sticky. But on the other hand, in recent weeks, we've seen Godfrey's, for example, end up in administration. Godfrey's has been selling vacuum cleaners pretty much for all of my life that I can remember. And then also unemployment sort of seemed to tick a bit higher in the last week or so. So where do you think we are and what do you think is likely to unfold? It's a good question. Look, I do think it seems pretty clear that economic growth or economic activity is proceeding at a pretty tepid pace. And you referred to those employment numbers last week, which did, I think, unambiguously show that the labour market is softening. And it might be that, you know, the unemployment rate, which I think the RBA forecast is for 4.2 by December, uh, sorry, by June, we're already at 4.1. Now, one thing I will say is that interpretation of statistics at this time of year is very, very difficult because the season 
seasonal adjustment process has probably changed. And there were some elements of that recent labour force report, which I think means that we can reasonably anticipate there might be some sort of offsetting strength in February when those issue, when those numbers are issued in early March. So I think, yes, the local economy is soft. You pointed to Godfrey's. Retail sales has been weak and the labour market looks to be softening. However, it's also true that inflation has been sticky. I think this reflects a couple of things. One is the RBA were very late out of the barrier in trying to contain inflation. And the longer you let it get away, the harder it is to bring back. I think that's the first element. By the way, the RBA weren't the only central bank that was laid out of the barrier to tackle inflation. I think that's true of almost every other central bank. And the second is there are some particular elements at work in Australia that mean that the task of getting inflation down here might be even harder even with weaker economic activity. And in particular, what I'm referring to there is what has distinguished Australia and maybe one or two other places is we've had very, very low productivity growth. So to the extent we've had low productivity growth, that makes inflation stickier. It's all right to have four, five, six percent wage growth if productivity is sort of growing strongly. It's not all right to have four, five percent wage growth when productivity is going backwards. And that's been the problem that we've had in Australia. That means unit labour costs, the amount of labour costs it takes to produce one unit of output. In the last national accounts, which admittedly were back in September, had been growing at 6.5%. And unless and until productivity recovers, it's going to be very, very difficult to get that rate of unit labour cost growth down and that rate, therefore, and that rate, to, uh, the current rate of inflation down. That's the first point I want to make. The other point is there have been sort of changes to the industrial relations and wage setting framework in Australia. Now, obviously, they're well-intentioned, but they're not, in general, helpful when it comes to exciting any sort of productivity growth in Australia. So, again, that's a domestic reason why inflation may be stickier. So that's Australia. As I say, there are some particular domestic reasons that mean inflation's higher, even with weaker economic activity. But I think it's more important too, just as important to acknowledge what's happening in the United States. There was a couple of price indicators out there last week, the CPI and the PPI. Now, the PPI is important because that feeds into the Fed's favoured inflation measure, the uh, core private consumption expenditures deflator. And I think that too emphasised how difficult and how sticky inflation is. Rather than immaculate and smooth, the process of disinflation tends to be a, you know, a little bit more disjointed. It's sort of two steps forward and one step back. And you'll hear a lot of central bankers talk about the so-called last mile to the inflation target proving particularly challenging. And the sort of numbers we got out of the US last week just got to emphasise that. And there are good reasons for that. Uh, you referred to my, I guess, longevity or probably uh, uh, old age is another term for it in terms of my experience in the bond market. But I think recently, uh, or what we've sort of seen in three decades, probably from the 90s into the first two decades of the, the 21st century, there were structural elements at work that served to suppress inflation. And they're in the process now of being reversed. So the globalisation of labour supply after the fall of the Berlin Wall and the export of labour from large emerging market economies such as China and India, that's abating. Globalisation of goods markets is in retreat because as governments everywhere introduce protectionist measures under the guise of industrial policy and national champions, domestic regulation of goods and labour markets is increasing in scope. Now, again, that might be well-intentioned and it might serve a purpose, but the reality is that means inflation is stickier and harder to get down. And finally, baby boomer workforce participation is declining. 
and that's limiting labour supply and lifting wages. So they're the global influences on, on keeping inflation high. And just as the US faces a challenge in getting inflation down, so does Australia face a challenge in getting down, and it's probably true in most other developed economies as well. Where the US might be a little different is economic activity there looks a bit to be a bit more resilient than, say, it looks to be here in Australia or in Europe or in the UK, which officially went to recession last week, or in, say, Japan, which also went to recession last week, and China, which has had some sort of well-documented headwinds that are confronting its economy. So the answer to your question is this, Damien. Inflation is going to be hard to get down, even with softer economic activity. I think we'll get there. I think what we can say is central banks have probably stopped increasing rates, but it might take a little longer before they start reducing them than markets probably thought at the start of this year. So, for example, markets had the Fed, I think, cutting rates by 150 basis points in January. That's been wound back to 90, and that compares with the Fed's own expectation of 75. Markets here, too, sort of almost had two, leaning towards three rates rate cuts price for 2024, that's probably in the process of being dialed back. Yes, there's no more rate increases. Rate cuts are coming, but they're probably not coming as quick and with the same orders of magnitude that markets may have anticipated when we first turned into 2024. Thank you. Uh, can we just step back to the industrial law changes or um, yeah. that we've, we've seen in Australia and announced in the last week or so? Mm-hmm. Personally, I was particularly surprised to see some of the changes that were mooted. For example, the bosses not being able to contact their employees after a certain <laughs> time of the day. What struck me the most, just in, in a, and I don't intend this to be a political statement. Sure. Chalmers, it's, it's early days in his career as a treasurer. He seems a, to have some talent and he seems to be a thoughtful man. Given that productivity growth is vital for any vibrant economy, it seems that some of these industrial changes fly in the face of that and will only make it harder to achieve productivity gains. Did you think much the same thing or, or how did you react to, to those when you saw them? Well, to be fair to Jim Chalmers, they weren't his laws, they were Tony Burke's. The Cabinet would discuss these, though. Well, of course, of course they do. I think you're right. I suspect Jim Chalmers knows what the right thing to do is. It's just that he has difficulty making those big reform changes that perhaps, you know, characterised previous governments, particularly the Hawke-Keating Labor government, where there was lots of uh, economic reform, helpful economic reform, which, you know, I think sort of set Australia up for an extended period of prosperity. I think Chalmers presents well, but if we judge him by what he's achieved, you know, I think the cupboard looks slightly bare. So, and, you know, there there are reasons for that. Some people might say that the current government doesn't have a mandate to implement those reforms. They didn't take them to the last election, so they can't, they don't have a mandate to do it, and therefore that's that's why they've sort of, you know, restricted themselves to very modest ambitions on the economic front during this term, the industrial relations changes notwithstanding. But at the end of the day, you're right, Damien, you know, these industrial relations changes, they might be well-intentioned. They're always well-intentioned. I don't think anyone sort of wants to to act as a, as a malign sort of agent in these things. But there are costs which arguably make the benefit, which, which arguably outweigh the benefits. And the big cost of those IR changes is they're inimical to productivity growth. And being inimical to productivity growth, they will make inflation stickier. And that's just the reality. I suspect Jim Chalmers knows that. And in that sense, it might be, it might have been a little remiss of him not to have 
sought modifications to those proposals. Who knows, he may well have done. That's the reality that politicians on both sides these days seem less willing to lead in, in, in the mould of Hawke and Keating and perhaps John Howard. These days, they rather they react to public opinion rather than lead public opinion. And that's, that's true not just in Australia, that's true almost everywhere. Yeah, we live in an era of populism. And, and again, that's not to say that the government's done a bad job or Jim Chalmers has done a bad job, but it's a long way from saying they haven't done a... There's a difference between saying they haven't done a bad job and they're doing an excellent job. And I don't think we can sustain an argument around the latter. Yeah, well, hence my remark about it. It's, it's early days for Chalmers. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. There's a lot of rubber still, yeah. still to hit the road. Now, if we could just move on to global growth. And again, we're in this challenging time. The IMF is talking about soft landings during the course of 24. Yet recently, as we've seen, the, the UK is, is stepped yeah. into recession. Japan, which I still think is, is that the third largest economy in the world? It went into recession last week. And that was a bit of a surprise, actually. I think that caught a lot of people in the market by surprise. No one saw the, the Japanese recession coming. I think they suspected it was happening in the UK, but certainly not in Japan. Yeah, and that also cascades down through Asia as well. Where, yeah. you know, I think we're all... Well, well, particularly with China, as I said earlier, facing some vast economic headwinds. So... In an election year, I mean, one would then assume that the batons of global growth um, have to be carried by Western Europe and... Well, that's not going to happen. Well, that that leaves the US in an election year. The US is, I think, a soft landing is deservedly the most likely scenario for the US. Now, in saying it's the most likely scenario, that doesn't mean there aren't risks that go both ways. We've already talked about sticky inflation. The other one is, we've been constantly uh, been alert for for the last two or three years, is a recession. Now, at the moment, that doesn't look likely in the US. As I say, the, the soft landing seems to be the most likely scenario. There are key risks to that scenario. We can't rule out a recession in the US either. That narrative goes, well, the reason that the US economy is sort of surprised, if you like, on the upside with its resilience is that that may have been the result of a US fiscal sugar hit. What people forget in the US is that the budget deficit there is 7% of GDP at a time when the economy there is pretty close to full employment. Now, that's not a desirable circumstance to be in. When you're close to full employment, you shouldn't be running any budget deficit, let alone one that's 7% of GDP, which is very, very high historically. As you say, this is an election year. It's harder to see the budget deficit get bigger this year, which might mean that you know there is some fiscal contraction and that some of the ongoing impact of monetary tightening in 22 and 23 might need to be withdrawn so that's the other risk scenario so you've got soft landing but the risks are on the one hand stickier inflation and on the other that there's a recession now if you ask me to put indicative probabilities on those i'd say the soft landing's about you know a 40 percent case the sticky inflation's probably about a 25 the recession's probably about a 25 and stagflation is probably about 10. so there's a lot that can go wrong with i guess the central scenario which is the point that i'm sort of seeking to make you mentioned elections we've just sort of confined our comments thus far to the economic outlook but you know if we look at geopolitical risk I mean, you've got the u.s presidential elections this year and everyone knows just how febrile the uh, the u.s political landscape is 
We've got EU elections this year. You know, the rise of the populist right in Europe may well be manifest in the results of those elections in the mid-year. You know, this includes Marine Le Pen in France, the AFD in Germany, the Dutch elections late last year, the, the populist sort of far-right parties got the most seats. So there's a lot of risks around politics and elections. And then we've got the Middle East, we've got Russia, Ukraine, we've got China, Taiwan, and we've got the Korean Peninsula. There's a lot to be worried about, even if the macro soft landing looks the most likely. So these things are all sort of worth considering. And I haven't even gone to some structural elements, which I think are just as important too. I talked about structural sticky inflation. But the other thing I think it's worth bearing in mind is that I think there's a higher neutral interest rate now. You know, the resilience of activity in the labour market during the recent Fed tightening cycle suggested that the notion that the natural real growth rate has increased and that the neutral real interest rates should have increased. I've talked about the US budget deficit. There's huge demands on savings pooled from clean energy investments coming. And I've mentioned in the context of why inflation sticky that baby boomers workforce uh, participation is declining and they're drawing down their savings. So all of those things might push neutral interest rates up. That doesn't mean they won't fall from here, but they might not fall that far. So there's those macro issues, there's those geopolitical issues, and there's those structural issues that might upset that sort of fairly benign soft landing outlook that we've got for the US and by extension elsewhere, even if elsewhere growth looks a lot more challenged than it might do in the US. Just coming to interest rates and central bank activity, where we are now, well, the market is anticipating rate cuts from central banks here and most notably, or the US gets all the attention. And in Europe and in the UK. And I think that's the right expectation. I'm just not sure it's going to be as far and as fast as the market's certainly as the markets had it back in January. Yeah. What I was going to ask you is it's more likely they'll occur sooner. Europe will most likely be the first card to fall given their growth profile is weakening faster than the US's anyway. So I suppose in general context, to what extent do you think that any reduction in, in rates, I know they'll have they'll be good for financial assets, but how do you think that plays out through the real economy? In the conventional way, I mean, it'll help. I think what we want to sort of remind ourselves is that is that those interest rate reductions occur because growth looks particularly weak. So what it might mean, and if inflation stays sticky, they might not occur, as I, as I keep saying, with the same pace that markets anticipate. So even if they do fall, they might not fall that much, which means the economy may take its time to recover. And, you know, we do get very, very tepid growth in these places and their cyclical downgrades to earnings. And well, bond markets might do okay or even well, depending upon the cyclical hit to earnings expectations, equities might not do anywhere near as well. Now, again, there's sort of the US and then there's elsewhere because the US actually looks okay at the moment and it's elsewhere where the problems seem to be manifesting themselves. You know, there's a lot of things there to, um, to think about. I think the other thing that we, and I'm sure, you know, some of your other speakers will engage with this topic, but there's some pretty big the mega forces out there impacting on equity markets too, just away from the economic cycle. Decarbonisation is a big one and how that sort of plays out. And the other one is obviously AI. These are big mega themes permeating through equity markets, particularly in the US, that A, mean the cycle is one thing, but these structural elements are another. And B, because they tend to be fairly US-centric, they're going to have an outsized impact on the US equity markets where already the macro economy looks in better health than they might do elsewhere, UK, Japan, Australia, places like that.
Yeah, it's quite interesting you mentioned one of the global megatrends is the energy transition. For a period of time, it was very manifestly obvious uh, in commodity markets, in particular, uh, lithium prices, cobalt yep. prices, nickel prices. And, <laughs> and what we've seen in the last year is is a collapse. Uh, I suppose it, it comes back to my question is how long is it realistic to, to draw the conclusion that the way markets would once respond with a demand stimulus, we all get in too excited too early and... No, no, look, I think it will It will respond to a demand stimulus. You know, it will respond to a monetary stimulus. It might just take time. That's all. Yeah. It's not going to happen overnight. These things never do. I do vaguely remember my uh, my undergraduate years, Damien, you know, even though it was, as you said in your introduction, a long, long, long time ago, decades, I think you said. <laughs> but I remember in my uh, undergraduate economics course, we were taught that the lags with which monetary policy operates are long and variable. And I think it just pays to sort of sometimes bear that in mind. Now, markets can be forward-looking, we know that, but sometimes a rectification, particularly after an inflation shock, can take a lot longer than, than markets might have otherwise anticipated. I think one of the famous economists of all time, John Maynard Keynes, I think Milton Friedman told us monetary policies, that the lags in monetary policy are, are long and variable. John Maynard Keynes once said that the markets can stay irrational longer than you can stay liquid. So these things are cute expressions, but every now and then I think we need to sort of bear in mind those things when we're thinking about investing. And, you know, all the things that we've canvassed this year, I mean, I think there's a couple of elements, basic lessons in investment that we all know, but we should all sort of remember that when you've got a lot of uncertainty, and we've gone through macro uncertainties, we've gone through geopolitical and political uncertainties and structural uncertainties, when you've got that many uncertainties, you can potentially get seismic shifts in sentiments and seismic shifts in the prices of financial assets, even if the soft landing benign scenario does play out. And that just re-emphasizes, or re-emphasizes a couple of things for me. One is the principle of diversification, which is the first lesson of investing. I think the other thing it throws up is it possibly increases the potential for return from skilled active managers. You know, high volatility typically leads to a greater dispersion of returns of individual issuers of, of stocks or, or bonds. Those mega forces that we spoke about, climate or decarbonisation and AI, are likely to accentuate that. And even sort of more mundane elements, housing shortages, particularly here in Australia, we hear a lot about that. Same in the UK. Strains on health systems from ageing populations. These things mean that the potential for return from skilled active managers could be potentially higher in a higher volatility environment. And it might be useful. Obviously, you've got to do your work to sort of search out a skilled active manager. But it might well be worth your while doing that sort of research, finding a good skilled active manager to manage your equities and even your bonds. And in terms of diversification, looking for most bonds and equities are always going to be the foundation stones of your portfolio or bond and equity beta. It's worthwhile looking for, for sources of return uncorrelated with the returns of the bond market or the returns from the equity market. And I think they're the sort of important considerations to bear in mind, given the sorts of discussions that we've had about what are the big issues out there for markets in, in 2024. All right. Winding the hands of time back to your days as the analyst and then later the, <laughs> uh, the portfolio manager. If you were running a bond portfolio today, how would you be thinking about positioning it? What would you be anticipating? I'll answer that this way. I've got a different career now, and that's managing the family self-managed super fund. I have to report to the investment committee in terms of my wife about how that sort of self-managed super fund's doing and what I'm doing in it. What I will say is in the last three or four months, 
for the first time in about five or six years, I've bought some bonds. And the reason I've bought some bonds is I think, A, we've had the yield back up, and B, we have got to a stage now where bond yields are pretty attractive. Central banks have probably finished the process of raising the policy rate, even if it might take them more time to embark on the downward journey in policy rates. And that means your chances of uh, any capital loss from holding a well-diversified bond portfolio are probably smaller than they have been for some time. So it's a good time to sort of look at some bond exposure. You're not going to get rich investing in bonds at 4%. But what will happen is if there is a big accident and if there is a big accident on the downside, we know that what the central banks can do now, that inflation is, if only slightly coming down, if only slowly, they can respond to that. They can respond with rate cuts. And they've basically told us they're going to do it this year. I think we can sort of see bonds reassuming in 2024 their traditional role in a multi-asset portfolio. In other words, as a good, safe harbour type investment compared to riskier equities. And in saying that, that's not necessarily because I'm negative on equity markets. I'm not particularly. But so what I'm saying is that we can uh, have meaningful foundations of a portfolio. Bonds are back. You always have your weightings to equities, but also have your um, multi-asset uh, portfolio, those sources of return uncorrelated with bond or equity beta. I like bonds because they're okay. They're not going to make you rich, but you're not going to lose much money from them. Equities are okay, but we know they're risky and we know there's lots of challenges out there. And I wouldn't forget those other elements that I, I talked about, investments that are uncorrelated with bond and equity beta. So what do I mean by that? I guess I mean, I wouldn't forget those things I talked about in terms of sources of return uncorrelated with bond and equity beta. So long, short, liquid alternatives, macro or quant hedge funds. With your bond exposure, you might want to sort of think about things like linking up a, a sovereign bond fund, so a very high quality government bond fund, and combining that with, say, a private credit fund where you can get sort of some very attractive type returns, including here in Australia, as we know with one of our partner managers, Tanara. So they're the sorts of things that I'd be looking at in terms of putting my portfolio together. A foundation of bonds and equities, so let's call that 40 and 30, and then about 30% to, to other things. As I said, long, short, liquid alternatives, macro quant hedge funds. You might be you might want to include gold in that. You could probably include private credit. You could probably include private equity even. And I guess if you're really adventurous, and I, I want to emphasize I do not have any of this in my portfolio, but if you're really adventurous, you might want to have a very small crypto exposure. But uh, that's not something that I'm, I'm putting in my self-managed super fund. So I hope I've answered your question in terms of how I've positioned my portfolio. I've up my bond weight from nothing to something close to 30%. I've got my growth assets, sort of equities, close to 40%. And I've got those other little bits and pieces there around about 30%. And that's the way I'm thinking of managing a multi-asset portfolio. So that way I'm sort of diversified at a very high level. And underneath that, I'm also quite well diversified. I've got a mix of passive ETFs and, and active managers with my equity portfolio, as I, as I mentioned earlier. Well, thank you very much, Steve. I think it might be time to, to wind the conversation up, given that you're in the middle of a storm uh, as we speak. And, <laughs> and, and, and thankfully, it's not the financial markets that are... Well, let's, let's, hope, let's hope that stays, it stays that way. But as we know, inevitably, there's accidents in financial markets, and I suspect we'll have episodes of that this year. You know, as I say, I think it's important to bear in mind that the soft landing case is the central case, but there's a lot that can go wrong with that. So don't be afraid of bonds. 
No, I mean, duration. Yeah. Who wanted to own a bond when the ten-year yield was less than one percent? No one. No, who wanted no, to own no. a bond when inflation was was rising rapidly and central banks were behind the curve in attacking it? No one in their right mind. Now we're at a circumstance where central banks are finished tightening, economies are slowing, inflation is coming down, albeit in a, as I say, a disjointed and two steps forward, one step back way. And in that environment, I think bonds are going to have a better year in 2024 than they have in the preceding three. I certainly agree with you. Steve, thank you very much for your time. And I look forward to, to reviewing our bold predictions later on in the year. Okay. All right. That might be interesting. <laughs> thank you. Okay. See ya.